Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. This morning, as we carry on looking in this series at Jesus, I want to take a slight tangent and actually look at someone who got really shaken. It's no surprising that during the worship this has been coming through because this morning we're looking at someone who had to face some real challenges and had to decide what to do. I struggled preparing this this morning because it is not a subject that I have ever heard anyone preach on or that we talk about very often. But it's a simple one. Why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin? Why? Why wouldn't any other sort of birth have been okay for him? Why did he need to be born at all? Well, we've looked at that because Jesus needed to be fully man to be our mediator. But why did he need to be born of a virgin? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how people knew that Jesus was coming. And we looked at 25 key scriptures that foretold his arrival. And one of them we looked at came from Isaiah 7. And it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Each Christmas, the whole world seems to celebrate the birth of Jesus. They celebrate him being born by his young mother, Mary. Homes are decorated, nativity scenes are put up. But the virgin birth remains probably the second most controversial and disputed miracle in the whole of history. Probably only following on from the disputes about the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Some don't believe in the virgin birth at all. Some people do believe in it. And others believe that the scriptural account is more like one of the host of other myths, legends, fables and folklore that have built up over the years. Opinions about the virgin birth differ. And throughout history, there have been those who support the virgin birth and those who've ridiculed it. There's an American chat show host called Larry King. And it's interesting. As far as I know, he has no Christian connections. But when he was asked if he could interview anyone from the whole of history, who would it be? He said, Jesus Christ. 
And when he was asked why, what would you ask him? Larry King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Isn't that an interesting response? Out of all the people he could have chosen to interview and all the questions he could have asked, he wanted to know if Jesus was in fact born of a virgin. So what does scripture teach us about this? Well, the start of this promise comes right at the start of the Bible. The first promise of Jesus being born of a virgin comes in Genesis 3 verse 15 where it says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in that, God promises that Jesus would be born from a woman. Now, we might not to begin with think that is particularly strange. But even saying that in Genesis 3, that Jesus would be born of a woman, is quite unprecedented in Scripture. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Scripture speaks of children being born of their father. But here, there's no father mentioned. It implies that there would be no biological earthly father. And Paul picks that up in the same manner in Galatians 4 when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah started to shed light on this. And there's that passage I've already read from Isaiah 7 verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. That verse is probably one of the most hotly debated Old Testament verses regarding the virgin birth, for two reasons. Firstly, some contend that the prophecy wasn't in fact speaking of future events, but rather speaking of the birth of the son of Ahaz. And that's half true. If you look at it and examine the context in which that prophecy appears, what you see is that it has a dual fulfilment. It speaks both of the birth of a son to Ahaz, but it also speaks of the birth of a Messiah into the house of David. And by naming the son Emmanuel, God is promising more than just a male baby. Emmanuel means God is with us. And that points to the birth of the Son of God. A couple of pages further on, we read in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, 
and of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And again, that promise speaks of far more than just the birth of a male child. Some also try and argue that that prophecy in Isaiah 7 doesn't refer specifically to a virgin. What they argue is that the Hebrew word which is used, which is halma, doesn't in fact mean a virgin, but it means a young woman. Because there's another Hebrew word, bethula, which specifically means virgin. But there's a number of reasons why we can't read the verse in that way. We can't read the verse as just meaning young woman, but it should be read referring to a virgin. Firstly, even if the word did mean young woman, and that doesn't explicitly mean she was a virgin, in that day, all young women were virgins. There was a simple reason for that. The two words were synonymous because if you were an unmarried woman and not a virgin, you were subject to death under the law. If there was any question about your virginity, a woman was subject to physical examination, and you can read about that in Deuteronomy 22, verse 14 onwards. Also, the word halma is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, particularly to refer to a young virgin woman. One clear example of that is in the story of Rebecca, who married Isaac, Abraham's son. And she is described as very attractive in appearance, a maiden, Bethula, is the Hebrew word used there, whom no man had known. And then, that's in Genesis 24, 16, we later read in the chapter, in verse 43, that Rebecca was a virgin, and it uses the word halma. So, those two words are virtually synonymous. But it actually appears that when they used the word Bethula, it required a little more clarification that the woman was in fact a virgin, whereas when they used the word Halma, it didn't. Two centuries before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek and what we call the Septuagint. That happened around 250 BC. And when that translation was undertaken by the Jews, they translated the word Halma into the Greek word Pethenos. And that unambiguously means virgin. So the Jewish scholars of that era certainly understood that word to mean virgin, and nothing short of that. 
And then, finally, in the New Testament, we can see that Isaiah 7.14 is clearly interpreted to be a prophetic promise about the birth of Jesus to Mary. And it's clearly interpreted that she was to be both a young woman and a virgin. And the fulfilment of those promises in Genesis and Isaiah are recorded in great detail in two of the four Gospels. You can read about them in Matthew and you can read about them in Luke. In Matthew, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear and make do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. We read about it similarly in Luke. And so the Old Testament the, both quietly implies and shouts out loud about the virgin birth of Jesus. And the writers of the New Testament went into painstaking detail to emphasise in every way that Jesus' mother, Mary, was still a virgin who conceived Jesus purely through a miracle of God the Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, over the centuries, a number of doctrines that don't have any biblical justification have grown up around what is a glorious truth and a miracle. And I want us to look at seven of them this morning. Seven specific beliefs that scripture does not teach about the virgin birth, but which you will find some people do teach. So number one, scripture does not teach that Mary had anything other than a normal delivery of that child. Some theologians, mainly Catholic, have taught that Jesus wasn't born in the normal way. He didn't come out through Mary's birth canal. Instead, well, I can't quite understand it, but I can only assume he had some miraculous version of a caesarean section. Because how else do you get out? But nothing in scripture says that. Instead, it contradicts it. It says in Micah 5, verse 2 onwards, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, coming forth 
whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labour has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. Micah predicts that it would come about through labour. The scriptures give no indication that Mary's birth was in any way abnormal or miraculous. As a human mother, she experienced the same pain of childbirth that every woman feels when she mothers a child. And that's what Micah was talking about. So that's the first one. Jesus was born into this world by a normal delivery. The second one. Scripture does not teach that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Arguments for what is known as perpetual, the perpetual virginity of Mary arose as early as the 2nd century and they became even more popular in the 4th century. And they came to a head at the Council of Constantinople uh, in 553 AD which actually declared that Mary was ever virgin. Now, some of the early church fathers, some of the Catholic and Protestant theologians picked up on that. Even Luther, Calvin and Wesley, to some extent. And the Geneva Bible picked up on that and was translated to say that Mary was ever virgin. And today this belief is still prevalent in the Catholic Church. They often teach that Mary was a virgin for her whole life. And because of that, girls should want to give their life to Jesus and be virgins forever. Effectively become nuns. Now, the implications of this one are quite important. Practically, this would mean that not only was Mary a virgin when she conceived Jesus, but that following his birth, she never had any intimate sexual relationship with her own husband. Now, that teaching has to be inaccurate for at least three reasons. Firstly, God designed marriage to include the physical union. You can read about that in Genesis 2.24. And he in fact says in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 to 5 that depriving one another of marital, marital intimacy without agreement is sinful. Secondly... Matthew says that they did have relationships following Jesus' birth. You can read that in Matthew 1.25. It says, but he, talking about jo Joseph, had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. He wouldn't have said that unless something happened afterwards. The language clearly implies that once Jesus was born, they had a normal marital relationship. Thirdly, scripture repeatedly states that Mary had other sons and daughters. 
Nothing in scripture suggests that she produced this half a football team through a succession of virgin births. Jesus was a virgin birth. James and his brothers and sisters, nothing in scripture says that or implies it. Jesus' conception was unique. The conception of his siblings, his brothers and his sisters was just done in the normal way. A husband and a wife doing what married people are meant to do. So scripture states that Mary was a virgin until the birth of Jesus. And a number of the early church fathers and a number of other great theologians have taught that as well. But much of the opposition to this simple truth is based on the false assumption that sexual intimacy is somehow unholy and therefore unfit for such a wonderful woman as Mary. And that is simply not true. The third one. Scripture does not teach that the virgin birth was a myth taken from another religion. In mythology, there are stories about Zeus begetting Hercules and Apollo. Oh, sorry, and, and Apollo begetting Ion and Pythagoras. And as a result, it has been speculated that Christians stole the concept of the virgin birth from these myths to make Jesus seem more godly. Now, we can reject that. We can reject that for at least three reasons. The first is, the prophecy that Isaiah gave came before many of those myths were originated. The second is many of those myths talk about gods having sex with women. And that isn't what we read about in the account of Mary's conception. Scripture doesn't teach that God had sex with Mary. It teaches that the Holy Spirit came upon her and she conceived. And the two are quite different. Thirdly, the myths generally do not involve actual human beings. They tend to be fictional characters who can't be substantiated. Unlike Mary, who is and was known throughout the New Testament era. So scripture in no way concedes that this is a myth taken from another source. The fourth one is scripture does not teach that the virgin birth proves the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was God. Now that might come as a surprise to you, because you may think the virgin birth proves that Jesus is God, but that is not what scripture teaches. Just because people believe in the virgin birth of Jesus doesn't mean they believe he is God. And to give you an example of that, Jehovah's Witnesses actually agree with the virgin birth. But then they declare Jesus to be the incarnation of the archangel Michael. And in so doing, they follow 
a heresy that's been around for ages. It's been around since the Arians who were around in the first century of the church. Even some Muslims believe in the virgin birth. But they certainly don't believe Jesus is God. They take him to be an anointed prophet. The fifth one. Scripture does not teach that our sinful nature is only passed down through the male line. It's not only us guys that are sinful. And I'm sorry if that offends some of you ladies. Some Christian theologians believed that the sinful nature was imparted during conception by the male. Their reasoning goes that Jesus had to be born of a virgin because if he had had an earthly father, that would have given him a sinful nature. And that would have brought him under condemnation. Scripture clearly teaches that the sin of Adam brings death and condemnation. And it brings it to all humans. It doesn't teach that the sinful nature only comes from our fathers. In fact, the Bible seems to connect sinfulness with the process of conception. You can read about that in Psalm 51 verse 5. But the line of teaching that assumes that somehow women are not as sinful as, as men is incorrect. Scripture flatly denies it. Both genders are equally sinful. And you can see that from Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some have gone even further, and to protect Jesus from any source of sin, the Roman Catholic Church followed this line of teaching another step, and said that, G that Mary never sinned in her life either. They say that she was immaculately conceived herself, so she inherited no sinful nature, and was not a sinner herself. And again, we read nothing about that in scripture. In fact, it goes against Mary's own words in Luke 1.46, where she declares that she needs a saviour herself. If Mary had no sin of any kind... Why would we read about her in Luke 2 taking a sin offering to the temple? <clears throat> Jesus was without sin and he didn't have a sinful nature. But not because Mary was without sin, but because he was protected by a miracle of the Holy Spirit in a way similar to the miracles where God made Adam out of dust or granted Sarah the ability to conceive Isaac. It was a miracle. Now, this might seem like a trivial point. It might just sound like something of academic interest, but 
if science continues in the way it is with test tube babies, with cloning and with genetic engineering, we may start to see people made without a father. And if what we believe is in so doing they are sinless, we have got to watch our theology on this. The next one. Scripture does not teach that there were other virgin births. Mormons teach that God the Father had a physical, flesh and blood, sexual relationship with Mary. And that enabled her to conceive Jesus. They also state Mary remained a virgin because apparently if a woman has a sexual relationship with a God, that doesn't count and you're still a virgin afterwards. That proposition is not supported by scripture at all. I don't think I need to say any more than that really. It is. It is. It is deception. The seventh one. Scripture does not teach that the virgin birth is unimportant. In answer to the question, can a true Christian deny the virgin birth? One famous author replied, the answer to that question must be a decisive no. Christians must face the fact that the denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as the Christ. The Saviour who died for our sins was none other than the baby who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. The virgin birth does not stand alone as a biblical doctrine. It is an irreducible part of the biblical revelation about the person and work of Jesus. And with it, the gospel stands or falls. Ironically, though, others seek to undermine this doctrine. A guy that I like some of his stuff. I know Melt does. But Rob Bell speculates in a book called Velva Elvis. Now listen to this carefully. He said, if Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry, and archaeologists could find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples that proved beyond a shadow of doubt that the virgin birth was just a bit of mythologizing the gospel, Sorry, mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to gain the appeal of the followers of Mithra and Diocian that were hugely popular at the time, we would not essentially lose any significant part of our faith because it is more about how we live. Did you catch that? What he's saying is, if it was all a lie that was thrown in to gain popularity, we don't lose any significant part of our faith because it's more about how we live. Now, to be fair, he doesn't go on to deny the virgin birth, but what he's saying is it is of no theological importance. And I think that's a step in the wrong direction. 
Firstly, because the only alternative to the virgin birth offered by Scripture is that Mary was in, in fact a sexually sinful woman who conceived Jesus illegitimately, which was the accusation made by some in her day. And that, when we are talking about Christ, the Messiah, and our Saviour, has to be unacceptable. Secondly, if the virgin birth of Jesus is not true, then the whole story of Jesus changes dramatically. It would start with a promiscuous young woman telling lies about God's miraculous hand in the birth of her son and then raising that child to declare he is God and getting people to join his religion. And it makes Mary nothing more than a con artist and neither her or her son could be trusted. And I find that totally unacceptable. Thirdly, the bit I don't like in this is somehow there is an implication in Rob Bell's thinking that DNA testing is more trustworthy than what scripture says. In it, he's saying that there can be authorities higher and above scripture. That we should put more reliance, if it were possible, in DNA testing than in what God has revealed through his scripture. And I think that's a dangerous way to go. Because what it does is it gives us a lower view of the perfection and authority and the trustworthiness of the Bible. The Bible is clear that Jesus' mother Mary was a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit. And if we deny that, we are plainly stating that scripture may contain mistakes or even outright lies. In the early days of the church, there was, a fact, a group who rejected the belief that Isaiah 7.14 spoke of a virgin. And instead, they believed it referred to only a young woman. And that group, who were called the Ebionites, were branded as heretics. One scholar writes, apart from the Ebionites and a few Gnostics, no body of Christians in early times is known to have existed who did not accept as part of their faith the birth of Jesus from the Virgin Mary. Another one writes, everything we know of the dogmatics of the early part of the second century agrees with the belief that a period that at that period, the virginity of Mary was a part of formulated Christian belief. One of the early church fathers, Ignatius, who actually was trained himself by the Apostle John, so he lived that close to these events, testified to the fact by speaking of the virginity of Mary. Now it's true that some of the doctrines we hold to are absolutely essential to the Christian belief. Examples of that are the authority of scripture, the trinity, about Jesus' death and resurrection. And others are perhaps more secondary. 
in that people who love Jesus, people who believe the scripture is true, can still have differing opinions. For example, there are churches that have differing opinions over the details of the way in which Jesus will come again. But if we lose sight of the virgin birth, what we lose is something at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. What we do is we diminish the trustworthiness of scripture and of Jesus himself and of the witness of his own mother. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make of Mary? Scripture prophesied that Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us. Born of a virgin, Mary. His birth is unique, it's miraculous, it's unprecedented in all of human history. What it shows us is that God works through us by his power and his grace. It also shows us that God honours motherhood. And there's something else. It shows us how he honours a woman of faith like Mary. It's all too easy to have a view of Mary that isn't based on scripture. Now, I would say some of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church make too much of Jesus. But some of us are probably guilty of overreacting and making too little of her. Mary isn't meant to be the centre of our faith. But she is an example of faith in Jesus. Can you imagine her emotions when she finds out she's pregnant without being married in a society that shamed, humiliated, exiled and killed such women. The tradition of the time was that they would take her to the gates of the city, they would rip off her clothes, they would dress her in rags, tie her up, bring all the other women to see her so they learn the lesson of shame through Mary's suffering. And as well as the women, there would probably have been the worst types of men there. 